Our passage today is Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel, the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have right relationship with God and one another, is what not only forms us, but also fuels us forward as the people of God. And as the people of God, we can gather each week with great hope as we open His Word that God's presence is especially with us. And with that in mind, we, we get to sit under His Word. It's not a Word that we think is a, a burden to us, but a, a joy and breathes life to us, fuels us forward for what's ahead. In Romans 13, Paul uses the words of, of owe, and, and I owe you, the meaning of that phrase can change significantly based on what you put at the end of that phrase or how you say it, right? I owe you money, right? You might have some sort of debt that you need to pay off. Or you could say to another person, I, I owe you this one. And you're, you, you want to give them credit for, for what they've done. Man, I owe you this one. Or, or man, do I owe you? Do you, you see how you say it differently? And now it's like, I owe you a favor for what you have done to me. Or you could say this way, boy, do I owe you, right? Like there's a sense of revenge in the middle of that, isn't there? And so how you say it and even what you put on the end of that phrase of I owe you and what you put on the end is going to change the meaning dramat dramatically. And what Paul wants Christians to be able to say what they can say and what they should say at the end of that word is I owe you to anybody out there love. That, that is the point of Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul says love each other and so fulfill the law. There's a connecting word from verse 7 to verse 8. So it's not as if we've just, we've, we've talked about the government, now we're moving on to something completely separate. He continues kind of the flow and connects them with that word, oh. Verse 8, he says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Christians are to be the kind of people who owe nothing to anyone but love. Now, I don't think Paul here is against borrowing. And if, against having any sort of debt at all, what I do think he is against, I think he's against dishonesty. Like, you, know, you don't leave outstanding debts without being able to pay upon them, right? There's no unfaithfulness or irresponsibility associated with Christians and anything else. I think that's implied there. So if something is owed, like taxes, maybe verse 7, honor, give it. If you owe a debt, you, you need to pay it back. Deal honestly, deal rightfully, deal faithfully, responsibly with others. But Christians are to be specifically a people who owe no one anything but this one thing. Paul slides in this really big exception. It's a small word, but it has massive implications, and it is the word love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now love, like the kind of love that we saw in chapter 5, verse 8. The, the love that comes from God that demonstrates itself and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that kind of love. It looks like death, but it brings life. In chapter 8, verse 35, Paul says, um, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What love? Love like verse 31 love. God is for us, that kind of love, the love that would be for us and for our good, then who could be against us? And the kind of love that's verse 32, that didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? That kind of love is love we can't be separated from. And that kind of love is love that's for us and and gives itself, sacrifices itself for the good of another. And so this is the kind of concept of love that, that Paul is driving at when he says to Christians, oh, no one anything except to love one another. And so I think it's helpful for us when we come in, we hear that word love, we, we have all kinds of things that start to fill our brains with what we think love is. And it's helpful to look at the scripture and let its form and shape of love impact ours. And it's helpful to have kind of a, a definition. This is one, there are many that could work, but, but one theologian says that love is a wholehearted commitment to act for another's welfare. A wholehearted commitment to act for another's welfare. Uh, another theologian talked about love as having three aspects, right? Three aspects in this love, and, and all of them are, are present in that definition. So the, the first being allegiance, loyalty, commitment to the good of another. He says love is a wholehearted commitment, right? It's a commitment to act for another's welfare. It's allegiance to them. You're fully loyal to them. So that's the first kind of aspect, allegiance, loyalty, commitment. There's a commitment there to another. The second is action. You're wholeheartedly committed to act. Love is, is action, right? It shows that commitment. It shows its allegiance. It shows its loyalty. In fact, when we look to the Scripture you're going to find a lot more about the actions of love than the definition of love. It's all over the place, the actions of love. It seems then that Scripture is much more concerned with the doing of love than the definition of love. Take, for instance, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Is he going to define it? No, he just says in this, the love of God was made known among us, that God sent his only son to the world that we might live through him. He doesn't say, what, what does it mean that God is love? He just says, here's how he showed it, how it's manifested, how it's known to the world in the sending of his son. Or you think of 1 Corinthians 13, right? The, the great love chapter. What, what 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't do is it doesn't give a definition for sin, what it does do is it gives all kinds of defining characteristics of, I'm sorry, of love, not of sin. First Corinthians doesn't def- define love, but it does give defining characteristics of love, and they're stated as actions. Like, love is something. It's patient. It's kind. It's moving in action in some capacity. And so love's doing in the scripture is much more prominent than love's definition. And so the second aspect, you've got allegiance, you've got action, and then the third is affection. And no one wants to leave that off, right? Like, that's, it's a feeling. It's, it's got something mushy in it, right? And, and yes, I think it does. It's, it's certainly not only that. I think sometimes we, we make it only that, but it certainly has that included in it. it. It's not only this, but includes it, affection, right? So wholehearted, there it is, there's the affection, commitment, there's the allegiance to acts, there's action for another's welfare. That's love. And Paul says, love, that Christian is what you owe to others. Wholehearted commitment to their good. That is what you owe. Christian, there is to be no doubt 
as to your settled disposition, your settled attitude, your settled affection toward others. It should not be uh, in question. What, what do I need to feel or, or think or what's my attitude and disposition to others? If there is a doubt about how to think about another, how to act toward another, how to feel about another person, let it be resolved in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love. Uh, you don't look at others with some sort of uh, cost-benefit uh, analysis sheet where you're thinking, how does this relationship affect me? You're thinking, how can I love them? There's no uh, analysis that we're looking at. If, if they continue to make me feel good, I'll continue to give them love. Or if they continue to benefit me, I'll continue to show them love. That, that is not what happens here. He says, oh, no one anything but love. Not if they give you something. Not if they benefit you. Not if the feelings are there. That's only one aspect. You are to have this allegiance, action, and affection toward others. Benefit or not, Paul says we owe love to others. And so the question shouldn't be, well, what do I need to feel towards others? We know what to feel. He says, oh, no, anything loved. What, how do I need to act towards others? We know how to act. We're to act in love. The question isn't who or what. It's who do I need to move toward with that disposition and that attitude and that affection. I heard one time of a counselor giving some biblical counseling to a husband who was struggling in his marriage, wanted a divorce. He says to the counselor, like, you, you just don't understand. It's so bad that I just want to get out of it. And he just turns, the counselor turns to the scripture and says, well, scripture says, husbands, love your wives. Oh, yeah. You don't understand. I, it's way worse than that. Like, I don't want to be around her. Like, I, I, I'd, it would be better for us if we lived in separate places. And he said, well, the scripture says to us, love your neighbor. I, oh, no, no, no. It's way worse than that. I, I can't even stand the sight of her. I don't want to be around her at all anymore. And he says, well, actually, the scripture says something like you're kind of describing her as an enemy. And the scripture says to love your enemy. You, you see how the scripture kind of hems us in on each side, doesn't it? It's like, what do you think of someone? Are they your enemy? Scripture says love them. Are they your neighbor? And we need to be careful who we think our neighbor is, right? Because Luke 10 will come flying at us and Jesus says, love them. Are they your spouse? Are they those around you? There's so clear commands to love. We are to owe no one anything but to love one another. And, and I think when Paul says this command in verse 8, likely he has primarily in view, like the church, they're hearing it together, this Roman church, they're hearing this command being read to them through this letter, and they're hearing it together. And so when he says love each other, certainly he has in mind that they have faces and people that they can see and look at and know that is the command for me to them. That ought to be in their minds. They ought to have faces and names. But I don't think that that's exclusively what Paul is talking about. Given the context, he just talked about governing authorities. Not all of them are in that room with them. And in that context where he speaks about a, an outside audience, he says, love each other. And so outside, inside, wherever we are to love, enemies, neighbors, close, close in your home, husband, wife, love one another. And we can kind of look at this from the, the outside in, right? If we're, if we're to love our enemies, how much more are we to love those who are not our enemies, right? How much more? If we're to love unbelievers, how much more are we to love those who are 
belonging to one another in Christ Jesus. And if we are to love those who belong to one another in Christ Jesus with this brotherly, sisterly, familial love, how much more are we to love our our spouse and those in our own home? You can kind of go outside in, but there is to be nothing between us and another but love. Now that love may take many different kinds of forms, and we'll talk about a little bit of what the form and the shape of that love is going to look like more clearly later, but all that's be to, be, to be between us and another is love, Paul says. That is, in a sense, like if you think about the currency between us is to be love. That's what's moving back and forth between us. Now, all the forms it could take, it's still to be full of and fueled by love. And so we need to ask, what's, what's between me and another right now? Is it love? And if it's not love, then, then what is it and how can I move in love? Is there distance between me and another? Is there coldness in our relationship? Is there strife and sin that has disrupted and broken things in relationships? Do we owe an apology? Notice how we say that language. You you owe an apology. Well, we may not know what to do in those situations. We, We may not even know what to say. How do I even, it's so broken and so messed up, how do I even owe love to this person? That's not necessarily a bad place to be where you say, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to say to do that, right? I love the story of Jehoshaphat. He's surrounded by a great army, and he says, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes, they're fixed on you. And that's a really good place to be for the Christian, right? I have no idea how to move toward them. I don't even know what to say to them. I don't know how I'm supposed to act toward them, but I want to fix my eyes on you, God, and I want to do what you tell me to do. And he says, owe them love. Jesus is the one who says, that I'm with you always. And he's with us as we move toward others in love. And we may not know what to say, may not know what to do, but he's with us. He, he can move us to say and do the right kinds of things. We can trust him. I, I love the, the in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about this relationship between Jew and Gentiles that would have had lots of breakages in it, that had a hard time reconciling with one another in one family, the family of God. And it says in the middle of that that Jesus himself is our peace. So we may not know what to say and what to do, but all those things are still true, right? We can fix our eyes on God. He is reigning and ruling over all. He is with us as we go. He himself is our peace. And so is there distance? Cover the distance. Is there coldness? Warm the coldness up with love. Is there sin and strife? Well, repent where you need to repent. Drop the strife where you need to drop it. Is there an apology that's owed? Well, then then give the apology. Move toward, verse 8, move toward owing people only Love as Paul commands here. And if we're to be a people that are going to do this, we need to remember where we are in the book of Romans. We didn't just land in chapter 13 because we thought it would be nice today, right? We, we have been traveling for a year through 12 chapters of the book of Romans. And chapters 1 through 11 are gospel depths. That's what Paul is doing in chapters 1 through 11. He is explaining over and over again, deeper and deeper, texturing, layering it all the way through, talking about the depth of gospel love, explaining gospel love. And in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, then he starts to apply it. Not that he didn't apply it in the first 11 chapters, but he starts to really lay it on thick in chapters 12 through 16. He starts to take that gospel love and apply it deep down to our lives. And he says to do this, right? What does he make his appeal by? By God's mercies, by the mercies of God. Offer your life as a sacrifice to God. Holy, living, acceptable, pleasing to God. That's what he wants from us. So so God's mercies, his love, gospel love that we saw in 11 chapters, is to lead to doing, action, right? 
And so how the how of chapters 12 through 16, the how of chapter 13, verse 8, is by God's mercies. The, the why of chapter 13, verse 8, is God's mercies. We, we could put in there how, the how of 13.8, well, how by the love of God. The, the why of 13.8, well, why by the, the love of God. That, that's how John describes it, right? He describes moving towards others in love. First John chapter 4, he says in verse 7, let us love one another for love is from God. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice the order. It matters here, right? Love is from God. He's loved us. And then he goes to verse 19. We love because why? He first loved us. And, and I think, Christian, we could do the same thing in the book of Romans, right? Chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, we didn't love him first. While we're sinners, he dies for us. Or chapter 8, verse 37. It talks about how in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who what? loved us. Like, passing, he loved us, and because those things are true for us in Christ Jesus, he first loved us, moved towards us, sacrificed for us, died for us. Because that's true, then he says, chapter 13, verse 8, love each other. Oh, nothing but love. So it's by God's mercies, by God's love toward us, that we are to move in love and move toward love for one another. And that's what keeps us owing only love. The, the only thing that can sustain us owing only love to one another is the love that God gives to us. The only thing that can keep that owing love to one another from being burdensome, right? Doesn't it sound like, hey, is that a debt that he just placed on us that we can never pay? Doesn't it sound burdensome? The only way that we can keep it from being a burden, uh, an obligation, and merely a duty is that we know God's love toward us. And that is the very thing that has formed us and is fueling us in love towards others. And by the way, that love is a love that never runs out never ends. And so if you're struggling, how can I move in love? How can I sustain this love toward this individual? God knows broken individuals, and he meets them with, with this infinite love, and, and he gives that love to us. He loved us, and, and it's through that love that we can move in love toward one another. Remembering that love, God's love to us, is what sustains that same kind of love moving towards others. I do want us to notice that there's no end date to this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And taxes can be paid. Credit card debt can be paid and you can cut up the card. You can be free from debt, but the command to owe love is ongoing. And again, how can God give an ongoing command like this to owe no one love? Well, because God meets us with ongoing love in Christ. And that love doesn't stop. And he says in chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from that infinite supply of love that we have in Christ. And that actually we're destined. We have this uh, future glory stored up for us. That future glory is a world of love. And so those who are met with an infinite supply of love in Christ Jesus and are moving toward, have a clear destination of a world of love, those are the kind of people he says to move in love. And so as love is paid... From God, it's not running out, right? And, and he expects the same for us. As we pay out love, we're, we're not ending with a, a net loss in our lives. In fact, I think we could say quite the opposite. You, you pay this debt of love to others and you start to get all the richer in it, right? It's not one of those things where you give it out and then the resource is dwindling because we're connected to the infinite source of love. 
And so as we pay it out, we're not running out of it. Like we keep going back to this bottomless well and like we keep drawing out more love because it's there. And then we keep giving that love out and it just grows and grows. One author said it this way, by its very nature, love is a duty which when discharged is never discharged since he loves, not truly who loves for the purpose of ceasing from loving. All right, we're not saying I'm going to pay this debt and now it's done. It's not love, right? Love, its very nature is not trying to stop, right? That not actually looking at the good of another. No, by loving, love is intensified. The more it is exercised, the less it can be satisfied. Like, can you, you, you know this in relationship, right? Like, you think about your, your children or your spouse. Like, man, the more you love, it doesn't stop like, oh, man, I ran out. Like, the more you love one another, the, the greater the increase of love. Surely we've known this in relationship, and what love ends up doing is it produces love. Like it doesn't run, it just keeps rolling and gaining momentum, and we can know this in relationship. And so the question that comes from chapter 13, verse 8's clarity to owe no one anything but love is not mainly, like, what am I to do with people? Not, I, I don't know, like, how am I to love? No, we know what to do. We, we need to move toward in love. So the question is, who? Who do we need to move toward? Who do we need to owe only love? Who do we need to move toward in love? And the answer for the Christian, it shouldn't be a, a, a what am I supposed to do, but, but how do I get there? How do I start moving in that direction? What do I need from the Lord? Like, he's given us all that we need. And so we look to him again. We say, let's move. Let's move in love. And that's the love that Christians are to have towards others. That it, it looks a specific way. So he, he says, right, owe no one love. And, and love looks a certain way. It fulfills the law, Right? Verse 8, he says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You, you can't fulfill the law apart from another person, right, in one sense, because you have to show love, right? So love fulfills the law. And he's going to say this again in verse 10. So two times, Paul, in these couple verses, is going to say love fulfills the law. This is the point of the text. Oh, no one love, because love fulfills the law. Now remember again that we're past chapter 12, verse 1, where he said, by the mercies of God, you need to offer your life, your very self, be all in with God. So in response to all that God has done to you in the gospel, the gospel depths of chapters 1 through 11, you need to be all in with God, giving your life to God. And Paul then expects those mercies from God and that grace that we receive from God to produce something. And here it's really clear what he thinks it's going to produce. In chapter 13, verse 8, he thinks that that grace, that mercy that has met us in the gospel is going to produce love in the people of God. And so the mercies of God are seen so many different ways to continue to fuel this mission forward. So the mercies of God in chapter 8. Look in chapter 8, verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. That kind of mercy. The mercy that when we couldn't do it, he would meet us as having fulfilled it and would send us in freedom to do the same thing. Or in chapter 10, verse 4, this kind of mercy. It says in chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Like we couldn't achieve righteousness through the law. We, we couldn't have done enough to be counted righteousness in God's sight by, by keeping the law because we couldn't keep it. And so what does he do? How does his mercies meet us? 
Christ comes and he fulfills the law. He takes the full condemnation that sinners deserve under the law so that now he can be the end and the goal of the law. He, he is the one who brings the law to its appointed end. He is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. Paul expects that those kinds of mercies, when they meet sinners, to produce love. He expects that believers, when they receive these mercies of God, will have love as the outflow of their lives. And he says of that love, when you love each other and love one another, that kind of love fulfills the law. He doesn't say that love replaces the law. He says it fulfills the law. He, he doesn't look back and say, you know, the, under the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament, that was all about law. But now we're in the New Covenant and the New Testament, and that's all about love. It's not what he says. I, I like how one author says it, that love is what the law commands. And, both of these things are true, the commands are what love fulfills. The love in the New Testament and under the New Covenant are not some sort of new ideas. If like God didn't know, you know that the law was really hard and legalistic in the Old Covenant, and now he's going to, like, I'm going to shift things up and we're going to move in love. It's not a new idea. The, the law was after love in the very beginning of its inception. When God gave the law, it was after love. And when God gave the law, that law itself was a reflection of the holiness and the love and goodness of God. It reflected his character and his nature. And God, his righteousness, his love, his goodness hasn't changed. And so it's not as if he moved from the Old Covenant and the Old Testament to the New Covenant and the New Testament. And now we're doing a different thing. Nope. Doing the same thing and God's righteousness hasn't changed. That's why he can say in verse 9, here's what love looks like. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The commandments, he said, are summed up in love, right? Jesus does this too. And I tell us the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Eh? Summed up in that. Now, Paul only gives one here. Is he missing one? We don't think Paul is, is missing one, right? Uh, Love for God, how is it displayed? Well, at least in, and maybe primarily, we could say from 1 John, in love for others. Like, How could you love God who you can't see if you can't love others who you can see? And so in, in a way, what's implied in this is he's not saying, hey, don't love God. That's not one of the ways we could sum up the commands. He says, actually, we could see it in your love for others. And you ought to love one another. We could sum up the law with that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the commandments are summed up in love. Love for others, guess what it looks like? It has a certain form. It doesn't look like however anybody wants it to look. It's not subjective. It's not ever-changing. It looks a certain way according to these verses. Here's what it looks like. It looks lawful. It looks like what God's law was describing. Now, one of the mantras of our day is love is love. And that sounds really good. And it even sounds good in a sense like, how could you be against love is love? If it's about love, how in the world could you, being the people of love, Christians, be against love? But we start asking questions, and all of a sudden that dissolves pretty quickly, doesn't it? I ask the questions, well, what is love? What are we talking about when we're talking about love? Is it whatever we want it to be? Why don't you ask the spouse, after their spouse has had an affair, if they thought if this spouse having an affair loved this other person, if that was love toward them. Is that love? Is love love? 
How about you ask the family of one who's murdered because someone loves murder? Is that love? All right, if you had something valuable stolen from you because someone loved that item, how does that make you feel, right? Like, is that love? Right, we could see all the ways that this is clearly like, it doesn't work. Love is love, doesn't work. Right, yesterday we were playing Play-Doh with kids, and then we have these uh, cookie cutters that we use with the Play-Dohs, and I, I cookie code, you know, you know, use the cookie cutter for the Play-Doh as a heart. And you can, you know, form the heart however you want after that. It's like you get this heart, you can make it flatter, you can make it a different color, whatever you want to do there. And love is not like that. You can't just kind of form it and fashion it however you want. Whatever color you want for it to be for the day, however big, however flat, however wide, you know, it doesn't work like that. Christians reject that. We have to reject that because love is from God. He is the source of love. He's the supplier of love. He's the standard of love. And so love doesn't look like whatever we want it to look like as if we know what love should look like. Like, how would we have come up with that on our own? Like, we wouldn't know what it should have looked like. No, love is allegiance. It's action. It's affection. But, but what does that look like? Right? What allegiance? What kind of actions? No, what kind of affection does that look like? Well, it's from God, and so he is the one who's going to direct this love. And I like, again, how one author says that love requires direction and principles of operation. Those aren't uh, a bad news to us that we say that love requires some direction and principles of operation. That's actually really good. It's really kind of God to give the form and the shape of love in the law. That's where he's given. He's really kind to give that in the law. It would be unkind of, of God to just demand love of us, owe love to one another, and not give a direction, not give a shape, not give any sort of principles of operation to that love. And just say, just figure it out. We would never know if we were hitting the target or not. We would never know what it looks like. It would be a moving target. And what would happen is, is that you could have all kinds of loves, like you love murder, and that would be a detriment to others, right? You'd see how that wouldn't work. And yet God isn't that unkind. He's kind enough to say, here's what love looks like. It takes a certain form and shape. And so he gives us these principles of operation. And so law, as a reflection of the righteousness, holiness, the love of God, gives expression to and direction, principles of operation for love in everyday life. That's what it does. And so when we think about this love that we owe towards one another, and he brings these commands, and we look at love, and we say, love is not against the law. If we love one another, we're not anti-law, we're not antinomian, we, we love the law. And yet at the same time, it's not legalistic and saying we're only bringing the law because what those who are moving in love towards one another do is they view the God of this law rightly. And the God of this law is a God who is good, who is loving, who doesn't command to be a burden, to just be an angry God just trying to get his people to submit. He is a God who is good. And so out of him flows only goodness. Out of him flows only love. Like we, we are seeing from him in his commands, in his law, only things that would be for our good. And so when we connect that, that means we're not against the law and we don't use the law as a hammer and say this is the only like no we see god as good his commands is good and so we want to be attached to those commands in the right way and so we want his expression what does love look like we want his direction we want him to give principles of operation for us to love one another and so he is the giver of this and we see it in his law the commands then are not to be cast off we're not like we're new testament christians so we don't care about the commands of god but when they're put on, we also know that they're not a burden anymore. Because now we have been loved and we can move in love. In fact, we can agree with Paul, right? In chapter 7, verse 12, he says, The law 
is holy, it's righteous, it's good. What the law does for those who are trying to move in love is it gives the track for love to run on. Run here. Some of the track is given, right? Here's the actual things he commands. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. These are the forms of love, right? They give expression to love. Any of these are summed up in the, the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it, it's right for us to look at these commandments, actually. Adultery. Like, don't commit adultery. Jesus uh, heightens that a bit, doesn't he? He says, don't even look with lust on another person. That's not love. Adultery is not love just because you would say it was love. It's not love. Lust, not love. God calls for something much better, sexual purity, faithfulness. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. He, he says, he goes on, another commandment he lists, don't murder, right? These are coming from the Ten Commandments. He's, he's informed by these, and those things that are informing him are informing what he's saying, how to love one another. So oh, don't murder, right? Clearly, that wouldn't be a loving thing, right? Jesus says, don't even be angry with someone in your heart like you're in danger there. That's not love. God calls for peacemaking, bearing with one another, living in harmony with one another. How about stealing and covenanting? He says, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Right? That's not loving. We're to be honoring one another, to outdo one another showing honor. And we need to honor even their possessions, the things that belong to them, and live a life with full contentment and satisfaction. And all the Lord has provided for us, knowing that it's from Him. Like, that's loving. And so when we look at these commandments, we're saying love's not against those laws. Love's not against these commandments at all. It loves those commandments and wants to walk according to them. All of these laws, they, they don't quench love. They don't suppress love. They give expressions of love. They give expressions of love for your neighbor. Right? We think that law and love don't go together, and Paul's like, they absolutely go together. Right? The law is giving you expression for your love. It's not suppressing it. It's expressing it. So these laws don't shackle love. They free love to flow. They give feet to love in everyday life. You think of a train on the railroad tracks. The tracks are not a burden and not a hindrance to the train. They say the train, they give you a place where you can go. If you think the train is better off outside the tracks and running in the ground, like the train's not going to go very far and it's going to be a wreck. But the tracks, that, that, those things are good. They give freedom to the train to move, to go. They give shape to where it's supposed to go. They give direction, and that's what the law does. And all these laws and more are summed up in verse 9 when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's Scripture assuming here in verse 9 is Scripture is assuming, not commanding, assuming that people love themselves. In Ephesians chapter 5, 29, Paul's talking about husbands and wives. He's, he's telling them to love your wife. No one ever hated his own flesh. Like he just assumes that that's true. And so when he's talking about that, he's not talking about idolatry of self or even selfishness. Actually, selfishness would be not considering others at all. That's selfishness. Love is not like that. That would be the wrong kind of love. And he says, actually, if you love yourselves, he just wants to extend that. You keep it only with yourself. You are being selfish. That's not love. You need to extend what you have for yourself to others. And so he's just saying, it's natural to us to have this preservation of our, of our lives. There's some instinct to look out for our own interests. And scripture comes along and says, hey, don't just look at your own interests. Look and consider the interests of others. Move. It just extends that love out. And so not just self, but neighbor. Not just your own interests, but the interests of others. And the form of that love towards those neighbors is these commands. Right? Notice all of these commands that are given, and all through the Ten Commandments it's like this. They are all second person, you, 
and they are all negative, and they are all singular, right? So you, not y'all, don't do something, not you shall do something. That's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? That, I think the form that they're given in speaks. It's saying something. Why is that? One commentator says this, because when you say you must not murder, not y'all, you individually, you must not murder, it means that each and every individual in the community must think first about the right of his neighbor, not first about his own rights. You're thinking about these, they're, they're making you move outward. You're not thinking about murder itself first. You're like, not murder, that's someone else. I'm not to do that to someone else. And so it moves you out, right? And so again, the, the summary of these laws is love toward neighbor. You could state it positively at the end and say it's all summed up by moving in love toward your neighbor. And that's what the commands are meant to do. They're meant to move us from outside of ourselves and extend the love that was already assumed of ourselves toward others. So we could say that the summary of love or a summary of these commands, is love toward neighbor. And he can go on to say, verse 10, your love, it does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. No wrong, we could say, no evil to the neighbor. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't delight in wrongdoing or in falsehood. It delights in the truth and good and right things. And so again, if you're saying like, I, I love something that's evil. Like, you're not talking about love in the biblical sense. You're talking about something different. Love couldn't do evil to a neighbor. And so, again, that, doesn't that break down the idea that love is love? And actually what it does is it says, okay, now, now we can bring the law into this because it does no evil. Because we, what is evil and what is good? And the law comes in and it tells us, gives us a shape like this is what it looks like. So the law is not incompatible with love. Evil is incompatible with love. Not the law. The law is, again, chapter 7, verse 12, holy and righteous and good. And the love that Paul is speaking about, it comes along and it fulfills the law. He says, if you look at the law, you look from top to bottom, you look all around, that law is what it's full of. It's full of love. Its intention, its purpose is all about love. And so when you come along and you act in love toward your neighbor, you're fulfilling the very intention and purpose of the law. Love running on the tracks runs on the tracks of law, right? Law. And if you love in that way, you're fulfilling the intention and purpose of the law. Now, while the law gives us this direction, here's what it doesn't give us. It doesn't give us motivation. It gives us the tracks to run on, but no fuel or steam to run down the tracks. Or coal. I don't know what kind of train engine I was thinking of here. It gives you the track, but it gives you no power. It doesn't actually supply the love, right? Law doesn't give you that love. So where do we get that? And Tim Keller said this, before love is something you give, it is someone you receive. Hasn't that been what Paul's done in the book of Romans? He says that the righteousness of God in chapter 3 has been manifested apart from the law. We need something outside the law. The law couldn't shape us. It couldn't change us the way we needed. We needed something deeper. The law was not meant to give us that motivation. So what do we need? Righteousness that's manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, what do they do? They're bearing witness to it. They're pointing forward to it. They're saying the end is coming. There's a goal to this. There's an end to this. We're pointing to it. What is that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or we could move to chapter 8. What does he do there? He said, what you need is Christ. Before, love is something you give. It's someone you receive. And in chapter 8, we see this again in verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's something you receive before something you give, right? And the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Where? In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. As those who look to Christ for our righteousness and our right standing with God, we don't look to the law for that. Christ was the end of the law for righteousness' sake. We look to Christ for right standing with God. We look to Christ for right standing with one another. We look to Christ for those kinds of things. And what we do in response to receiving Christ is not ditch the law. Look in chapter 3 again, verse 31. It talks about, hey, find your righteousness in Christ. There's justification only in Christ. And what does he say? What do we do then? Do we overthrow the law by this faith in Christ? No way. We uphold the law. Or in chapter 8, there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. He's condemned in the flesh what I couldn't do. Like that lawbreaker, that's what Jesus was considered on the cross. He received the curse of the law for breaking the law, even though he didn't break the law. That's why I can be counted as free and redeemed, and that's why I can have no condemnation. So what does that do for me if I'm in Christ? Well, chapter 8, verse 4 tells us. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, pulsing from those who are in Christ, who walk according to the Spirit, is the righteous requirement of the law. In Christ, we are now rightly related to God and rightly related to the law. Now, I've said this before, and I think it's really helpful, but in Christ, those who are in Christ are now in-lawed to the law. That is, we're related to the law, not from the law directly. Uh, Directly, it condemns us, but through Christ, now we're in-lawed, and now it changes, doesn't it? The law that once condemned us, we can view differently. We are in-lawed now. That we see it through him. Amen. And it sees us through him too. Right? Uh, outside of Christ, it would condemn us. In Christ, he says, uh, back off my spouse. I was condemned in the flesh so that they might have no condemnation. And so we're in law to the law. And so now as we look through that in law, as we look through our husband, we, we don't cast off the law and say, let's, let's be done with that. We love our husband. And because we love our husband, we, we love what our husband loves. That Christ was not one who said, I hate the law. It's so burdensome. No, we, he loved the law. And because we're justified, we don't say, let's get rid of the law. It's like we're justified in Christ, and he loved the law. We don't say there's no condemnation for us, so let's forget about the condemning law. No, when we're in Christ, we don't want to ditch the law. We want to fulfill the law because we know where it comes from. And we know through whom we now can see the law through Christ Jesus. See, when we love Jesus and there's love for us and him toward us and us toward him, then then now all of a sudden there's no condemnation in the law. We don't cast it off. We know that our righteousness is through Christ. It's not through the law. And so we look at the law rightly and we want to be like Christ. And and what was Christ like? He's like Psalm 1. 
He's the man of God who loves the law of the Lord and meditates it on it day and night. He could be the Psalm 119 man who all through and through delights in the law. And we want to be like Christ. We are actually, chapter 8, verse 29 says, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. What kind of image is that going to look like? It's going to look lawful because he loved the law. He delighted in it. He came to fulfill that law. And so Jesus, he sets us in right relationship to God and the law, the law that he embodied and fulfilled. And so now the law actually gives the right tracks for believers to go on. And in Christ Jesus, the one who we've received, gives us what we need to then give it. We receive from Christ, and then now we can give love out. It's his love that empowers us to walk in love. It's his righteousness that empowers us to then move toward others because we're secure in Christ. It's his love that empowers our own. And when we look to the love of Christ and we see all that he's given to us, it moves us to this place of, of chapter 12, verse 1, right? By the mercies of God, I'll give you everything. Amen. Isaac Watts said it this way, drops of tears can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. That's chapter 12, verse 1, right? You have bought me by your mercies, met me in my sin by your mercies, you can have everything because of how good you are in that. And those who know what God has given them through Christ Jesus, who say, I'm all in with God, and thus I owe God all of my love and can never fully repay it, I just keep giving myself away. Those who do that, here's what Paul says that they also should do. Owe no one anything but love for one another. Church, if, if you have received the one that you need to receive before you give love. You've received Christ. We need to remember his love together. We do that in the Lord's Supper where we see and kind of, in a sense, we, we get to picture how God demonstrated his love for us. And while we are still sinners, we, we still sit. We're not finished products here. We're still broken and sinful, moving toward more and more conformity to the image of the Son. And right in this place, there's no condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus. Because his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we might be forgiven and justified and stand in this place of no condemnation right now. He demonstrated his love for us in this. And it's that love that we look to in order to say, well, I want to fulfill chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, but we look to that love in order to fuel it. We look to that love in the supper. If this isn't you, if you haven't received Christ, if you don't know what it means to be in Christ, ask another believer, come talk to us about what the gospel is, and we want to share with you the hope that we have in Christ to be in this place of no condemnation now and be moving towards future glory. But don't take this meal. This meal is for believers. It's a family meal. So instead, take Christ. Let's pray together as we prepare for this meal. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you've shown your love to us, Lord. That while we were loving ourselves, while we were yet sinners, God, you, you came and you died and you rose that we might know a better way. And Lord, we come out of a world and a culture, a dark. It makes us experts at, at loving ourselves. 
we come from a context where we're told that it's honorable and right to put yourself above all others and to pursue whatever it is you want to pursue and to be whatever it is you think you want to be. It wars against why you made us. God, we need your help and you've given it. You've given us your spirit, God. You've shown us the way. You've given us the tracks. You've given us the power. You've given us everything we need. Live lives that, that glorify you. And yet, it's a struggle. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, daily to take up our crosses, to look to you first for our strength, and then to look out to others and to identify needs and to be sensitive to ways that we can show love to one another. So, Lord, we pray that our allegiance, that our actions, and that our affections, Lord, would be centered on you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.